Hello and welcome to Honey, Are You Happy? A podcast dedicated to breaking down stigma and promoting recovery from eating disorders. I am your host, Joss Walden. I'm an assistant psychologist and an ambassador for the UK's leading eating disorder charity, Beat. I also have a lived experience recovering from anorexia almost a decade ago. I combine my lived experience with my professional training to give you honest, empowering and challenging conversations all to support your education and recovery. Hello and welcome back to Honey, Are You Happy? Now today I'm joined by the wonderful Hope Virgo, who is an eating disorder campaigner and best-selling author. I can't talk today. Um, (laughs) Hope is widely known for being the power voice behind the Dump the Scales campaign. Um, I've been following her journey online for many years now and uh, had the privilege of also attending the first ever Eating Disorders March, which was a fantastic turnout. So welcome to the show, Hope. It's lovely to have you here. No, thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful to be here. What kind of got you into the work that you do? Yeah, good question. Um, So I do all my campaigning from lived experience. Um, So I had an eating disorder when I was a child, so developed anorexia when I was about 12, 13. Um, Eventually was hospitalised when I was 17 and kind of came through that whole period of my life. And whilst I wasn't fully recovered when I got discharged from treatment, I kind of knew what I had to do to stay well. Um, Over the next eight years, I was in a really good space with it and thought I was at that point kind of fully recovered. I'd gone traveling, I'd gone to uni, like I'd done all this stuff that I just thought would never be possible. Um, And then unfortunately, I relapsed um, after my grandma passed away. And following that relapse, I was unable to get any sort of treatment support on the NHS. And I remember it really well. I remember going to this appointment and kind of talking through my whole history, everything. My mum actually came with me, even though I was in my 20s at the time, because I knew that having her there would help alleviate some of the guilt um, around going and reaching out for support, but it would also help me to be a little bit more honest about it. And um, I left the appointment um, and they told me I wasn't underweight enough. So there wasn't anything they could do for me. Um, And I remember just feeling so awful after that appointment. I I actually felt really suicidal quite a bit. I felt like a complete loss at what to do. I hated this narrative going on in my head, but I kept thinking like, do you know, I've just got to see like what will happen. Um, And luckily I came through that relapse. And whilst again, I wasn't fully recovered when I came through, I definitely kind of settled in this midway point. What I began to realize when I started to share my experience was that what I'd been through wasn't a unique thing that happened to me. But people every single day with eating disorders are turned away from treatment for not fitting into this kind of neat box. And what we're seeing nowadays as well is kind of on top of people not being thin enough to get support. People are also being told they're too sick for treatment. And so for me, Dump the Scales actually came from that experience I'd been through and from hearing other people's stories. Mm. And I wanted to, I guess, make sure that services change to give that support to individuals But I also wanted to make sure that society had a proper understanding of eating disorders so that everyone knows that eating disorders don't have one particular look. Absolutely. And I think like I remember when Beat started campaigning for BMI to be taken out of the diagnostic criteria for for anorexia. And it, it still baffles me how, you know, they're not weight disorders the weight is a symptom I think it's only like six percent of people with anorexia are actually underweight so that's a whole 94 percent of people who are just written off and like oh sorry you you can't 
access any help. And it's appalling to hear that actually then when, you know, if they do get to quite a low weight, then they're told that they can't access because they are now too sick. It's like you can't win. It is just ridiculous at the moment, I think. I think that's what's so scary is people just being kind of discarded and people with eating disorders are basically like, yeah, not getting the support they need just because of this back history that we've just never properly challenged. Yes. So where would you say we are at the moment in terms of treatment and diagnosis changing like where are we because <laughs> there the funding is also the main issue of course yeah as well as actually our treatment and we said the nice guidelines that are followed in clinical practice but maybe being outdated or maybe being biased to one particular treatment that is funded to be you know researched and looked into yeah and I think that's the, I think I guess first of all, that's the hard thing I think the guidance is really outdated at the moment and I've spoken to a lot of people over the last even over the last week actually who the treatment isn't working for them and so they feel a lot of shame they're like what's wrong with me why is it not working and it's like we're still not tailoring treatment to fit around the individual who needs it and the reality is probably the only place you're going to get that tailored treatment is if you go to some private clinics and a lot of people can't afford that um so we do have one treatment that is working um to some extent for people affected by anorexia um, it's being rolled out in Oxford at the moment, um, which is a really positive step forward. It's called ICBTE, um, and it's led by Dr. Agnes Ayton. And it is a treatment that, from looking at the research, is having a 70% success rate on people getting to that space where they are fully recovered. But I think more broadly and on a national scale, we're still not seeing the improvements that we need. So mm-hmm. last week, um, I held a meeting in Parliament um, with a lot of MPs. And we looked at actually what needs to be done to get kind of ministers, to get the kind of government, to get the prime minister, everyone backing this. Mm. And obviously the first thing that you've touched on is, is funding. It's a massive issue. We need to have adequate funding to meet the demand for people needing support. Um, but we also need to be looking at what services are working and what aren't working. So a huge ask we're putting out at the moment actually through the government is to try and just get people to report on their outcomes. So we can see is are people getting better? Are they responding to treatment? And if they're not, why not? What can we do to change that as well? So I think, I guess there has been some positive steps forward with regards to eating disorder treatment um, in some parts of the country, but we are still seeing huge levels of trauma as well. Yeah. And I think that's another thing that isn't really spoken about is actually, you know, trauma can be something that actually underpins the kind of the development of an eating disorder. And I I always loved, um, I work in psychology and I always love the iceberg analogy of Mm. how, you know, disorders, be it addiction or, you know, eating disorders develop. And it's all those behaviours that you can see on the top of the iceberg. Um, Actually what's fueling it is that maybe the anxiety or depression or experiences that have happened beneath. Um, And I find that a lot of our services don't really think about the re-traumatization that can happen when you're told to go out of area for treatment or you know you might be around other very chronically ill people or people who are using other behaviors um it it's all the standards of care that you get which obviously there have been some really ghastly panoramas that have highlighted some areas of the UK which standards of care have slipped hugely um, and there's been massive compassion fatigue amongst staff teams and it is it's kind of now become a very systemic problem and it baffles me that you know people would go into a care profession and not look at the whole person yeah Uh, it's really kind of for me counterintuitive yeah it's interesting isn't it I was thinking that when I was in treatment which was over a decade ago now but they took risks with my treatment like plan to help me get to a space where I could like be the best 
I guess the best recovered that they could set me up to be. Um, but people no longer want to take those risks. And I think about it a lot, actually, with things like exercise and recovery from an eating disorder. Exercise is something that some people do struggle with. And then when you get on that road to recovery, you're told never to exercise again. But that's not setting someone up for success. It's it's still making it this thing that we cannot be doing. So it's even looking at things like that, like how can we adapt treatment to work for an individual so that they know how to live in the outside world? And I think I think a big thing with the NHS is it is that risk factor. They're not like briefly, they're not willing to take that risk to see if something's going to work for someone because it will be held over them if it doesn't work. For you, what was the kind of turning point in your recovery? Um so I think probably a couple of things. So I guess the first thing was accepting that I had an eating disorder, which I'd never was able to do throughout my whole teens, throughout my kind of outpatient um, time as well. But on the Friday night when I was in treatment, um, one of the nurses got me to do this exercise where I had to draw this life-size version of what I looked like. Um, once I'd done that, she traced around my body. And I remember looking back and just being completely shocked at the difference in the images and it was just, it was just, I thought she'd lied to me. She'd like made it, she'd like somehow tricked me. But actually I had this realization then when I looked at these images, that there was something kind of wrong with my brain in the way that I viewed myself. And I think like, just to emphasize, like eating disorders aren't about body image and mine definitely wasn't, but the body image for me became something that was really wrapped up in my illness. And I had this complete body image distortion. Um, and so I think for me, having that evidence helped me in that moment to actually start to get to a space where I could eat, where I could get into the kind of routine and structure. And then my brain obviously began to recover. I did a lot of talking therapy um, along the way as well. I think for me, that got me to a certain space. But most recently, I think it's kind of realizing that actually I can have a life away from this. And mm. a lot of that is about kind of rewiring my brain um, like challenging myself with food on like a day to day basis. Even today, um, I saw my dad and I'd kind of planned to go um, and get uh, like a Tesco's lunch thing for me and um, Joshua and my dad for lunch. And then we ended up going out for lunch, like completely last minute. And it it's the kind of thing like in the past that probably would have completely thrown me. And don't get me wrong, I still have days when doing stuff like that. It's like, oh my goodness, what have I just done? Like, how's this going to work for the rest of the day? Um, but I'm now in a space where actually I can do that sort of stuff. And having those kind of motivators along the way to do it is is being really key. And I think a big thing, like for me, I really wanted to have children and yeah. like having a baby. Obviously, it doesn't fix everything. And it has so many, so many challenges along the way when you've had an eating disorder mm -hmm. and you're pregnant and then you're kind of in that postnatal bit. And it's just completely like, yeah, it's just a mind mess at points. But for me, it's also helped me to think like that is my reason why I want to get to a space where like if Joshua wants to go and get, I don't know, something to eat off, like after school one day when he's a bit older, like I don't want to be someone that can't do that with him. Mm -hmm. um, so finding my why has been like a crucial part as well. I think it's I do think it's really hard, though. And I think and I guess I want to say this because I, I talk a lot about like these is what I've done, like this is how I got to this space. And honestly, a lot of it has just been sitting in the pain, in the uncertainty, sitting in that frustration. And people always ask me, like, how do you sit in that uncertainty? How do you sit in that pain? And I'm like, you know, what? sometimes it's so it feels impossible. It feels relentless. But mm -hmm. I know for me that if I get through a day of sitting in that pain, then the next day I can get up and maybe it won't be there anymore. And if it's still there, then I'll get through that day. And then the next day will come and I'll just get through that. And it becomes like a bit of a day to day thing. Um, and yeah. that you just learn to kind of manage it, knowing that at some point you hold on to the fact that this will go and things will kind of start to shift in that more positive sense.
Absolutely. And I would agree. I think the most questions I get from people that I've, I've mentored or buddied in the past is about going through that anxiety and like how do I stop a certain behavior because that yeah. intense anxiety is just so much or how do I eat more and at the end of the day it's like you you just have to do it and then you have to know that if you distract yourself you know that you will come out the other side and you know the next day it might be slightly less um yeah it's really, really difficult and there is no there is no easy way out we just sometimes have to do things scared or have to do things feeling uncomfortable yeah um but it's definitely, I think, I don't know about you, but it's something that now I have such self-awareness about myself and how I feel and my triggers yeah. and just, I, it's almost helped me now take care of myself better. Um, and I can just read my body and my mind in such yeah. a, a, a very unique and personal way that I don't think had I had my experience, um, I would be able to do. Hi guys, I'm going to interrupt this podcast for just a moment of your time to ask you to please press follow and submit a rating on this podcast as it really supports the free content I make for you online. Also, if you're struggling today with disordered eating or body image issues, you do not have to struggle alone. Please head on over to the show notes and click that free coaching call button and sign up today. Look forward to speaking to you soon. Now, without further ado, let's get back to the episode. I know that you've also written three kind of books um, about your kind of recovery journey and one of them, You Are Free Even If You Don't Feel It, talks about how during recovery introduced you to your faith. And I was just wondering what role did coming to church and developing a faith have for you and how did that help you in your recovery? Yeah, it's it's really, I think, yeah, I guess I guess it's a kind of a bit of background. Um, so I had a really challenging upbringing in the church Um so I got actually got sexually abused within the church environment. Um, and it was like, I think I was, there was so much church hurt there that I kind of lost sight of my faith um, for quite a long time, actually. And when I first kind of went into treatment, I remember leaving church and just thinking, you know, what, I'm never going to go back there again. Um, for the years kind of prior to that, after the abuse, it had been a very social thing. I'd kind of gone because there were like attractive guys there and it was like a bit of a social life. And I was like, this is actually quite fun. Like, I don't have to believe anything. I can just go and do all of this stuff. Um, but then eventually when I was 17, I kind of completely walked away from it and actually vowed to never go back into that sort of environment again. I like that hurt was just too much for me. Um, and I couldn't get my head around a lot of like, why did this all happen? If God's there, like this doesn't make sense. Um, as well and then yeah as you said someone approached me once and I ended up um, off the back of that um, going to church a couple of times um, in South London where I was living at the time and then went on an alpha course and had a bit of a chance to kind of explore kind of God where things were at with it but again kind of went into it with that kind of you know I'm not going to believe this I'm just going to go and be that person who's going to argue and disagree and I kind of I think I kind of went back to maybe being a bit like a teenager (laughs) so just so argumentative about everything Um, but they were really patient. They were really loving. Um, and it was a safe space to just ask all those questions. Um, so back in 2019, I then re-became a Christian. Um, and it was it was interesting. I think I, I was I was so pleased that I made the decision to do it. But I also felt absolutely terrified because I didn't feel like I had all my questions answered. I didn't know like 100 percent how I really felt about the whole thing. Um, as well and it was interesting actually this morning um, I was thinking about it I was listening to a podcast um, by someone else um, and in the podcast they were talking a lot about um, kind of faith and the role it plays and addiction and things like that 
And I was kind of thinking to myself, like, did I only become a Christian because I thought that if I became a Christian, then I'd be fully recovered? And I honestly think at the start of my faith journey, I thought, I thought that would happen. I thought like, I've become a Christian, then everything's going to be amazing. I'm going to be, yeah, fine mentally, like it's going to be what it is. And like, don't get me wrong, there has been moments in the last kind of couple of years when I have been a Christian where things have felt really easy. And I felt like I'm making huge steps forward in my recovery. Um, And, but there's also been moments where things have felt really, really tough and really challenging. But I think for me, what what has helped with having a faith is like, first of all, like I 100% kind of categorically believe that God loves me and God's kind of in it with me. And it's amazing having someone alongside you to kind of be there. I'm also one of those people that, whilst I haven't necessarily now found a church that I kind of go to on a regular basis, I enjoy having like that dialogue with God kind of quite often. So like even when I get into bed, I'll be like, oh, do you know, I found this really hard today. Like, why did I find this really hard? Um, and I've got to a space where I've been able to really share like a lot of those frustrations with him um, and also with other Christians as well and start to kind of unpack it as well. I do think, though, um, to kind of yeah go, I guess, countering that, I don't always think the church feels like the safest place when you've had an eating disorder. Um, and I've done a lot of writing around kind of issues around going to church and there always being meals available. And that's like their big selling point. Come to church and we'll give you a meal. And I'm like, doesn't really work for everybody. Um, so I think in that sense, the church probably has a lot to do to make it more inclusive to people affected by eating disorders. Absolutely. And it's it's so interesting to hear your your cyber story, too, because I, I was someone who I lost my faith during my eating disorder similar reasons just like why is this happening to me can't be true you know just discounted all the kind of early experiences I had I always call them like god incidences um but it's something I kept returning to during my recovery and then um after my recovery and then I met my current partner now and I only met him because we matched on hinge because he put Christian as his thing and I thought okay and then it just kind of um, clicked and we went back to church but I remember part of my journey was actually allowing myself to be angry with God Mm. and I think when you said about that constant dialogue I completely understand that (laughs) and also just getting frustrated and being like it's okay to be like why is this happening I don't understand this This isn't fair why have I been dealt these cars in life um uh, similarly to you, I had um, a history of sexual abuse as a child, so um, it was it was allowing that to be also like that is a relationship I can get angry at. I don't have to yeah. come and be perfect or just say thank you for things I'm not thankful for. I can come and be like, I'm not okay with this. This really sucks. Yeah. <laughs> and, <why it's laughs> me. Um, and I think once I kind of allowed that to kind of be my narrative as well, um, I found my relationship with God grew. And also I felt it a safe place to have a faith again um, because I no longer had to be the squeaky clean, clean perfect person. Yeah. It was more about actually kind of building that rapport in a way, in that relationship. Yeah, and, no, that makes sense. And as you said, having that that person alongside me um, to make the difficult parts of my life feel less painful. So that's it's really interesting and um I think special that you, you share that as well and you've written about it. Yeah, I think it was, I felt actually really, I've, yeah, I felt really nervous doing it. Um, and I still sometimes feel nervous kind of talking openly about my faith for some, I think because I don't have all the answers to everything, yeah. but I don't think anyone's got all the answers. And right. yeah, I just, yeah, I do. I think from a faith perspective, like I do believe people can fully recover as well, but it's that frustration and kind of balancing the kind of nuance between why then don't they get fully recovered and why do some people not some people and all of those kind of big questions that no one has the answers to. Yeah, definitely. And do you have in your mind kind of like an idea of what 
full recovery really looks or feels like for you? I know you said that you've already kind of tasted it earlier and you then relapsed when you were 25. But what now for you does does full recovery look like? Yeah, it's funny. So I actually asked this question last night on my Instagram. I should have looked at some of the answers before <laughs> I came on. Um, I think for me, it's having that full freedom, um, not just about, not just, I guess, I guess, yeah, it's the full freedom around food and exercise, but knowing that eating disorders aren't actually about those things. They're because something's going on for that person. And that's just how we kind of portray what's happening. Um, so I think for me, it's, it's that full freedom around that, but also being able to be present with people all the time, like knowing that I might have some bad days, but that's not an eating disorder bad day. It's a bad mental health day and that's okay. Um, I think accepting my body for what it looks like or and kind of just being kind of neutral towards that. I don't think full recovery for me is loving my body, but it's yeah, having that kind of acceptable acceptableness. That's not a word, but you know what I mean, <laughs> towards it as well. Um and I think like having, yeah, having the energy. Like I think the really the thing I've noticed along the way with my own experience is I've had these glimpses of full recovery, like on a number of occasions where I've not worried about what I've eaten. I've not kind of been stressing about things, not ruminating over food in my head, not ruminating over behaviors or people or things like that. And I've seen the real positives of not thinking about food all the time and the kind of spontaneity aspect as well, like being able to go, mm. like having a friend message me now, obviously I wouldn't now do this because I've got a baby, but in the past having a friend message me being like, do you want to go for dinner tonight? And me being like, yep, that sounds great. Like I'll just come even though it's not planned. So having that whole aspect, and I've been there before, so I know that it's possible and I know I can get back to it. But I think for me, that's a huge, that's a huge part of recovery, just having that complete freedom around things. And again, like knowing that you might have a bad day, but it doesn't mean you're going to get unwell again and you're not going to relapse in that sense. But I do think that, and um, you've probably, yeah, obviously spoken to loads of people um, with eating disorders probably. And I know that recovery can look really different for different people. And I think that's the really key thing as well is, whilst for me, I'm always... I always know and I'm hopeful that people can make that full recovery because I know it's possible. You will have people along the way who who can't for whatever reason. And that's nothing to be ashamed about and nothing to be embarrassed about. But I think for me, for those people, it is like, let's keep working to kind of support them and surround them with the right people as well. Yeah, um, and I think the other final thing, actually, sorry, just on the reco- full recovery thing, I think the other thing is not being, not being triggered by comments um, as well. Like, I think for me, I still... I still have people that trigger certain reactions and I have like this mantra in my head where I'm like, don't let them derail you. Like, you can do this. Like all of this stuff goes through my head. And I'm like, actually, do you know what? I wish I didn't have to have that. I wish I could just be like, they've said it. It's what it is. Let's move on. Yeah, definitely. And I was also, I was thinking about this the other day because on my, on my TikTok, I got a certain comment um, on a, on a post once that really targeted me for um, advocating for full recovery when I live in a smaller body and I thought this was a really interesting point because while we shouldn't stereotype or stigma eating disorders and and what they look like and we always preach about how eating disorders don't have a look or a size I was thinking well surely neither should recovery and like I almost felt bad for for like my genetics or being in the body that I've I have or and I thought my gosh like we need to still change the narrative even in in like what an eating disorder looks like but also the recovery doesn't have a look it's all to do with you know what's going up in your 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 mind how your your relationship with food your relationship with self because it isn't about your body at all and I thought it's an interesting targeted comment to get it's hard, isn't it? I've, I've definitely heard people say that before. And I think it is, you're right, recovery doesn't have a look. It's about the mental, yeah, the mental state of the person. But I think because what I've seen is obviously because eating disorders are so competitive, 
that people will constantly be kind of competing and it's hard I wouldn't I wouldn't yeah I guess in that for me I don't know what I'd say back if someone's back to me but I'd probably be like you've obviously got a lot of work that needs to be done still um like but I do get it it's it's really challenging and I've got friends who've recovered into larger bodies and for them there's been a whole other kind of processing thing they have to do but I think for me that's why we you have to or everyone has to get to a space where when you're in that recovery process, whatever size body you are, you've got to trust the entire process around it and know that on the other side of that fear, you can actually be fully recovered and you might have, it might take a bit more work, but you can also still get to that point as well. Um, And I guess also like for those individuals, it, it is looking at surrounding yourself with the right people and creating your social media with, with people that maybe actually you find it easier to follow who are maybe also in that kind of recovery process and have the same recovery body as you. And I don't think there's anything to be ashamed about if you only want to follow those people. Absolutely. And do you have certain things that you do now to keep yourself almost kind of safe or on track with recovery? Yeah, so I guess I, so I guess it's shifted slightly over the last kind of year, probably. Um, Before I was, it's before I had a baby, I was actually very meticulous on what I did. So I actually had like, um, it was actually a piece of paper, but it was like a wellness jar that I'd kind of have every week kind of look through and be like, right, what do I need to do this week for myself? And it would be like seeing friends, maybe kind of challenging certain fear foods. Um, they'd be going to church would be on it, things like that. And I kind of go through it. And every week I'd make sure like I'd done like a number of things off it to kind of keep myself topped up. Honestly, now it's slightly harder to do kind of all of that kind of, I guess, the self-care type stuff. Um, so for me now, it's much more kind of, I guess, functional in some sense. So right now it's making sure that I get sleep when I can. So like yesterday morning, um, I actually had a nap. My baby had a nap, which is something I actually find really difficult to do. But actually making myself do that from time to time is really, really key because it helps me mentally. Um, but it also just, I guess, because it's a challenge, it's obviously something that I still need to work on to kind of accept that. Um, I also make sure that I challenge food um, quite a bit still. So if I go for dinner with people or lunch or whatever. Um, and I kind of see something I want off the menu. And then my brain starts to be like, oh, I can't have that. I'm like, no, actually, that's what I want. Let's go for it. So kind of constantly pushing myself in that sense. Um, I also make sure that I've got the right people around me. Um, and I think, again, that's a really hard thing at points because and actually it was on the same podcast that I was listening to this morning, all about kind of certain friendships, like actually making sure you've got the people. And I think that's a key thing for all of us. Surround yourself with the right people and don't feel bad or guilty if you need to pull and kind of cut certain people out of your life, because that's not just on you, it's on everyone. So kind of owning that as well has been really key. Um, I know what all my triggers are, or like most of them are. Um, So kind of, yeah, again, being really mindful of that. Um, And I think a big thing is kind of holding on to, yeah, like why I want to stay well, kind of reminding myself of that. Um, I'd like to say what I used to do um, when I first had Joshua and when I kind of before having him as well, is I did, I was really good, um, at journaling every night and every morning um I used to read my bible a lot more um and now I don't now honestly I don't do it as much when I'm in when when he goes to bed I have to basically make a decision whether I have some time to kind of mundanely scroll on my phone um do bits of work or go to bed myself um so the journaling and things like that kind of get shelved quite a lot of the time um and every day I'm like right I'm gonna try and do better and trying to do this um so actually this morning I actually set my alarm for five minutes before he was gonna get up 
um, so that I could have like five minutes to kind of read my Bible before the day started, which definitely sets you up for the day for me anyway, in a better way. Um, And that might be kind of, I think that is the thing you find these five minute increments, whether you've got a baby or not to kind of do that stuff that is really, really key for you as well. Um, Yeah, I think, yeah, I think these are probably my main things. And I guess just trying to talk and communicate for me, like the eating disorder was all about like a numbing emotions. Um, and so for me, I have to have a way to communicate and find a way to communicate as well. So that might be like just saying to my husband, you know, what, I feel rubbish today or like messaging my sisters being like, oh, I'm having a really difficult day at the moment um, as well. Um, and I guess the other thing just to kind of flag, which I think probably people, I guess people talk about social media all the time in podcasts, but I think social media does have a role to play. Um, and I was actually chatting to my friend Louisa um, again earlier this week about social media. And I'm very mindful that for me, I go down quite a comparison route on social media. And particularly when I'm tired, when I'm kind of trying to juggle work and being a mum, and I'm not really sure where I'm going sometimes with things. And even with my campaigning, like whilst, whilst I'm really pleased with how it's going, I think there's also moments when you look at what other people are doing and you're like, oh my goodness, it's not going as well as that. Or why is this failing and things like that? Um, so I guess just also kind of creating my social media so that I'm not constantly kind of triggered or finding myself down rabbit holes as well. Um, and I say all that about social media, knowing that I'm very, very bad with it at the moment. And I need to be much better at not going on it quite as much, particularly in the middle of the night. Yeah, yes. No. <laughs> I have. I, I Same as you, I try not to go on past a certain time. Otherwise, I just don't sleep as well because of blue screen and all of that but I definitely think like more so than ever we have to be so aware of our online environment and it's like so easy to make comparisons when we don't even realize we're making them yeah I think it's something like our brain makes comparisons within like two milliseconds of seeing a photo so you might yeah. not realize that you're looking at it you're scrolling and your your brain is on some level taking in that content so it is so important that what we're giving ourselves is is really nutritious for our brain and um yeah I think that's probably something that we could all do a little bit more of is curating our online environment I started looking at panda videos so now I just get a lot of pandas uh, <laughs> I highly recommend it's very amusing <laughs> but it's been a, a welcome break from bikini bodies it's been so great to have you on today and I just really want to know what is the future of dump the scales like where to from here so, so uh, I guess yeah so I'm just trying to think the best so we so obviously off the back of the march back in uh, 20th of May that was so the day before that I delivered an open letter to number 10 kind of again going through a lot of our requests around funding around having a meeting um things like that uh I haven't actually heard back from number 10 yet but I have a meeting with one of the political advisors there next Monday I think it is um again to kind of probably look at the letter and kind of have a bit of a chat about where things are going and stuff like that um Last week, I mentioned we'd had a government roundtable, again, kind of looking at a lot of the asks around it, kind of bringing together the right MPs to talk about it. The main thing at the moment is to try and create as much noise around dump the scales and around eating disorders more broadly, looking at pushing for the funding, looking at pushing for training, looking at just raising that kind of awareness more broadly. The reason we need to do that is, I guess, firstly, because there is still a lot of stigma out there. But also, secondly, there is a general election that will be on the horizon. Um, and we need to make sure that eating disorders are mentioned in every single party's manifesto. Um, so I have been meeting with the kind of manifesto writers. Um, they probably have an official name, but that's the name they're getting today. Um, over the last couple of weeks to try and get eating disorders onto their agenda. But it's it, honestly, it's really difficult when you're up against all of this other stuff and 
when there is still the stigma around eating disorders and people just aren't that interested in it um, currently. So doing a lot of work around that at the moment. So the key thing I'm asking people to do at the moment is to just keep writing to your local MPs, like send them letters, tell them about your experience, like ask them to support the campaign, ask them what they're doing. I've got loads of kind of templates of letters, which again, I'm happy to share with anybody. But the only way that we can get this on the agenda is to create that noise. And it's really interesting, actually, a lot of the political engagement I've had is actually off the back of constituents writing to their local MPs. So it's not a wasted job. It is actually something that works. Um, So, yes, we've got kind of all of that going on behind the scenes. Um, And then I'm also working on um, potentially having some kind of uh, more awareness type events uh, in October in Parliament. Um, So when I know like whether that's all kind of confirmed and stuff, um, hopefully it'll be really exciting to um, for people to come along and get involved in and see as well. And I think the main thing for me is trying to just get those stories out there. I think like, honestly, like whilst I love campaigning and I've loved sharing my own experience kind of on various different kind of platforms and to different people and stuff. Like right now, I just want to be kind of amplifying the voices of people who've not had their experiences heard and people who are having the treatment with palliative care pathways, people who are being told they're untreatable and also the good things, people who are fully recovered actually, like what can we learn from their experiences? So again, a big thing is just trying to get more of those stories out there and sharing people's experience, whether that's on my social media, whether that's with the government, all of that as well, kind of bringing that together as well. Um, And then obviously, like if we don't get eating disorders onto the manifestos, a lot of the work will just continue. Um, We're focusing a lot on prevention at the moment as well. So looking at what we can do in schools across the board. Um, And also, again, just making sure that when there is stuff around eating disorders, it's to a level that is, that is, yeah, I guess, supporting a person's recovery as well yeah absolutely do you think within that is there any talk about like social media like um curating and like boundaries around kind of moderating what people can post and guidelines yeah so I'm working um with Instagram and have been for the last couple of months now um on putting together kind of something a bit more formal with them Um, And a lot of that will be kind of internal stuff within their staff too, but then something hopefully we'll be able to kind of share more publicly as well. Um, We have got the online safety bill that went through, I think for the second or third reading um, last Monday, um, which honestly was slightly frustrating. Um, I think the focus is predominantly on pornography and suicide, which is obviously two really important cases, causes, but we kind of had eating disorders completely dismissed out of that. And obviously, well, I think it's 20% of people with an eating disorder do end their life by suicide. Eating disorders don't seem to fit into that um, in the bill as well. Um, So yeah, we are looking at kind of the online world within it. One of my things that I do have my kind of biggest worry with within social media isn't even the kind of pro-ana websites, if I'm honest. It's the kind of wellness influencers who are sharing their diet advice, their fitness advice, things like that. Because what I'm seeing a lot of in schools and also within kind of adults as well, people are getting this advice and taking it as gospel and being like, you know, what, I'm going to do that so I can kind of look like that person or be like that person. Um, so there's a huge amount of work that needs to go into actually yeah. kind of calling people out on that as well. Um, and also, I think just more research into social media, like what what is the harm it's causing? Like, how is this affecting people? Like, what can we do moving forward to actually make sure people are not triggered by content they're looking at? Absolutely. And I think, you know what, why eat in a day posts have always been an absolute hate of mine. I firstly don't care. And <laughs> secondly, I just think like, for, yeah, like you said, for people watching those, like the videos or reading those posts, 
they take it as if like if I eat like that I, I will look like them and that's just not how our bodies work and also it puts that kind of hierarchy or morality around food that what they're eating is right yeah. and what we're eating is wrong and that's the exact narrative that we're supposed to be moving away from and it's the complete opposite of intuitively eating and honoring our cravings and honestly I look at some of those posts as well and they're perfectly into meals and snacks and the way I eat is very much like when you know I get like three afternoon snacks and a main meal and I just pick at it it's like oh gosh it makes me feel bad that I'm eating in a way that is wrong or maybe I should stop snacking or should eat you know different meals and I think it's a double-edged sword though and I even put this up on a poll on my Instagram the other day and I said is it helpful to you to see people eating meals on, on Instagram and people said yes it makes me feel like I can can eat other food and it's this real kind of I think if it's done in the right way and it's kind of showing maybe just like a, a a healthy diet or eating a fear food and someone who's challenging their eating disorder yes I can see the benefit that that might give someone the encouragement yeah. that they too can, can um, face a fear food or, or try something new but at the same time I I, I they're not my favorite and I, I hate the fact that it makes you compare and contrast yeah. and 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 put any kind of morality around food or what you're eating is right or wrong or sometimes it comes down to the person as well who's sharing it like what is the reason they're sharing it like why do they feel the need? and I know actually for me when I started challenging a lot of my behaviors um I kind of midway through the pandemic I actually was like right now do you know what? I'm going to use this time to really challenge things I got into this habit of sharing a lot of my challenges because it helped to alleviate some of the guilt that I had and I was like oh it only really counts if I've shared it or people won't think I'm doing it and then oh it's just the whole thing was just turned into this kind of weird thing and I was like do you know what actually I'm not going to share like everything I do challenge wise and people don't believe that I'm doing it I don't think that's what it is but actually it's not helpful for me in my recovery right now because I just if I don't share it, I feel guilty and that's not normal like you can't only eat to share online um so it's been I think for me it's even been that kind of learning curve actually what how much do you want to share and when is it right to share? And then why are you sharing it? Is it, is it so you alleviate the guilt? Is it so that you can prove something? Because actually you only need to share for yourself really. And I think the other thing is also just like being mindful of your audience as well. Like however many followers anybody's got, we all have influence in that space. And it's making sure that actually we're conscious of who is looking at our accounts and creating a safe space for us and that's and for them. And that's the that's on the ownership and the responsibility of the person who's posting. It's a complete safeguarding of who's looking at your content. Um, and also, like you said, asking yourself, you know, why? Why am I doing this? Do I need the likes? Do I need the validation? Mm-hmm. And if, if so, why can't I get that for myself? Yeah. Or why can't I get that for my partner or my, my parents? But I do think that's such such a big problem especially for younger generations and I think the school work you were talking about and the early education is, is so so needed um because it's just a different world out there from probably when you and I first yeah. <laughs> got diagnosed and, and and got sick which I, I had a Nokia phone I was playing snakes so <laughs> it, was, it was a very different time so <laughs> much easier than with just those brick phones <laughs> Yes, yeah. I had ignorance was bliss. I had no idea what other people were eating for their breakfast. <laughs> um, thank you so much for joining me today, Hope. I always end by just asking the person what their their kind of top three bits of advice would be if anyone's listening today and they're kind of in in recovery and they're kind of struggling. What you would say? Um, yeah. So I guess find your why. So find your reason to recover um, and hold on to that through everything. And when you've got that reason, don't let the eating disorder convince you that you don't, that you can get that why, even if you're not fully recovered. Um, 
I think for me, the eating disorder made me feel invincible a lot of the time. And I felt like I could just do everything I wanted to do and still have an eating disorder. But the reality is it couldn't. Um, so that could be that you want to go traveling. It could be that you want to have a future, not kind of like micromanaging everything you're eating. It could be that you want a family, anything like that. But find your why, write it down and kind of fixate on that. Um, the second thing I think is find the right people to surround you. So people who can cheerlead you, who can champion you, people that can cry with you through a meal if that's what you need, people that you can be really honest with and have someone to communicate with, um, has been that's been like a crucial part of my own recovery. Um, and then I think finally, like don't lose hope that you can fully recover. I think yes, at the moment it's it's honestly really really stark out there, and it feels really difficult and it's relentless and. It's a really, yeah, I don't, I don't want to be too negative, but it's a really difficult, challenging space in the world of eating disorders and kind of trying to recover and have treatment at the moment. But don't lose hope because you can get to that space and it takes time. It's difficult, but you can do it. So just, I think, hold on to that through all of that pain and uncertainty. Absolutely. Oh, thank you so much. And I will link all about Dump the Scales uh-huh. and the links to Hope's social media in the show notes. So please, um, if you've been inspired by her today, which often when you hear her talk, you are, um, please go and support the cause and write your MPs and get involved. Thank you so much, Hope. No, thank you so much for having me.